Do you aspire to become a responsible leader? How do you see yourself now as a young man? Learning from challenges is one thing, but getting opportunities is another. If you're a young man who wants to learn about personal growth, life lessons, and leadership, tune in to Essential 11, Shaping Leaders Among Leaders. So the way I said it, sir, I said, um, we're welcoming a friend of mine today who, for my money, is one of the best educators uh, on the planet. And, and I don't think there's a better way uh, to introduce you. How are you, sir? I'm wonderful. It's so great to be here. So great to see your meet your audience. And uh, I'll return the compliment. Matt Boudreaux is one of the most amazing educators, leaders, and uh, mentors out there. I, I constantly repost his stuff on Facebook. So if you're not already spreading the word by Matt Boudreaux, please do so. Oh, thank you, my friend. I appreciate it very much. It's so fun to be able to bring you on, on on this too. It's, you know, every week we get the the pleasure of bringing in these amazing men to talk to these young guys. Of course, we launch it as a podcast as well. Um, and it's great to, to be able to do that, but it's you know, there's always something special too when it's a when it's a friend and somebody in the same space, and so um, it it is an honor, man. And so the way we run this podcast is you and I'll chat a little bit um, for you know 15, 20, 30 minutes. Maybe we'll kind of dive into you and your story a little and what you're doing, and uh, then we'll open it up. All these handsome guys on here will uh, will get a chance to jump in and ask the better questions. So does that sound fair enough? It sounds like so much fun. I can't wait to get started. Beautiful. Um, well, what I'd love to do is I want to make sure, because this is going to go out to uh, quite a few young people. We have quite a few parents. I know this goes out to, I believe we have subscribers now in 60 some odd countries, which is amazing. Um, and it just goes out to so many people around the world. I'd love to make sure we give them a background of who you are. But I like to start when you're like their age. So we've got, you know, young guys in here as young as maybe 12 and 13 up to 18, 19. So I like to say, hey, let's go back to Michael Strong at, you know, 15-ish. Who are you? Where are you? What are you doing? What kind of young guy are you? Well, thank you. And it's it's great to go back and revisit those days. So um, I was born in Denver, Colorado. At the age of 10, my family moved to Minnesota. We bought a farm. And while, of course, it was difficult, I love having been raised on a farm. So from 10 to 17, I was on a farm. And we had milk cows. We had feeder geese. We had feeder pigs. We had baled hay. So I don't know how many of you know much about farming, but it was a great experience. I also lived near a state park. And I would ride my bike um, to and from the park two, three miles away. I went to school in a small town in Minnesota, Bagley, Minnesota, that was 25 miles away. By the time I was maybe 16 or 17, not every day, obviously not in winter, but I would often ride my bike 25 miles to school. Usually I'd take the bus back because both directions is too much. Um, but my uh, I was probably stronger and healthier then than ever riding my bike yeah. those kind of distances. And um, yeah, when I was on the bus, the school bus, I, I was good at school. Uh, eventually. I learned that I'll, I'll be very critical of school here, and I'm sure Matt and I will get into that. <laughs> um, but on the bus, I was playing chess with a friend, and we would play chess in our heads. Part of it was on the bus, we'd go over bumps, and we didn't have a magnetic chess set, so the chess pieces would fly all over. We had to remember where the chess pieces were, and eventually we played chess in our heads. 
And um, then I was also reading a ton. I always say the best part of my education was I lived in northern Minnesota with bad TV reception, which meant on long winter nights, I read a lot. And then finally, I was uh, in cross country and track. And by the time I graduated from high school, I was uh, you know, in the small school league. I'd moved to Colorado by then. I think I placed 18th in the state in a small schools track. So not kind of super champion runner, but pretty serious about it and grateful for being in shape and in a big way back then. So that's the brief snapshot, Matt. Where do you want me to go from there? That's awesome. So talking about, so you, you know, you said I was good at school and, and you and I have talked extensively, obviously about this. I also was good at school and, and very much had the realization that, you know, I could figure out this school game, but I hadn't figured out the game of life, the game of who Matt Bodro was, what did I have to offer the world? What were my unique gifts? Right. And there was none of that. Um, I just knew that I was really good at school. So you mentioned that what was the support or the conversation, I guess, is, is different than support. What was the conversation like around that at home um, from the parental side? Was it the, hey, make sure you go to school, get your good grades so that you can go to college, so that life was it that kind of standard status quo sort of thought mentality? Well, actually, not so much. <laughs> uh, so I have an unusual background. My mom was a high school dropout, and my dad was an elevator repairman and bought the farm. We were always struggling for money. Um, so I would say my parents were absorbed just with, you know, one, one Christmas, all I got was a blanket for Christmas because it was cold and we needed a blanket. Yeah. So they were just, you know, kind of barely keeping their head above water. But one of the things I'm grateful for actually is, when I uh, when I went to college, I had really good test scores. So I was going to go to St. John's College, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but instead, I went to Harvard. And one of the great things about it, actually, is my parents had no clue. Um, years later, 20 years later, my um, step half-sister was applying for colleges. And that's the first time my mom discovered that uh, it was hard to get into Harvard. Yeah. And my uh, bless his soul, probably never knew, you know, he, dad, oh, Mike went back to school back east somewhere. So one of the, and, and I just mentioned that because so many kids are burdened by parental expectations. So in the most loving way, I'll say my parents were clueless and I'm actually really grateful that my parents were clueless because I have not a trace of pressure from them. I was free to do whatever I want, whenever I wanted. Um, I was, you know, we had family in Colorado. So I was driving back and forth between Colorado and Minnesota when I was 15. Um, you know, obviously Hitchhiking's not safe, but I was hitchhiking around the world when I was, you know, 17, 18. Um, I traveled to Mexico, Europe and everything, you know, 18, 19 alone. So basically I was kind of on my own from a young age, free to do whatever I wanted, zero parental expectations. And compared to so many people with those uh, parental expectations, I was incredibly free from a young age. Absolutely. What a blessing in that regard, which we don't, again, it, in the greater conversation, that's not necessarily seen as that. You and I both have a friend, Lenore Skenazy, who talked, you know, with uh, Let Grow and, and what she's doing there and, and trying to make a cultural push towards getting young people back some sense of that freedom, right? And, and unburdening themselves from these pressures that aren't necessarily beneficial. What made you choose then with having that freedom, which is great? What made you choose Harvard? Was it just this sounded good? Was there a, a motivating like a factor for that? 
No, good question. So final transition, because we were broke, my grandparents lived in Aspen, Colorado, um, in a trailer house. They, my grandfather was a carpenter and Aspen was a rich town. And so because we were ran out of money, we went there so my dad could get a job. And I spent the last year and a half in Aspen. And um, there the college counselors saw that I had good grades. So they encouraged me to go to the best college I could get into. Um, just as an aside, I'm big on teenage work. As uh, my high school senior year, I was working in a restaurant and I was working about 20 hours a week as a dishwasher. And it probably in some ways it was the most, uh, you know, liquid income I've ever had because, you know, living at home with parents paying the bills, 20 hours a week as a dishwasher, I was able to buy skis and stereos and, you know, all kinds oh, of goodies, yeah. a car because I had money. That was fun. Uh, so yeah, I was working a lot and basically skiing and working my senior year of high school, which is super fun. And then yeah, I had good grades, so I went off to Harvard. There, it's all about famous people lecturing at me, and I'm bored. Anytime somebody lectures at me, like somebody walks up to me at a party and starts lecturing at me, I think they're a jerk. So uh, I hated being a lecturer. I transferred to another college, St. John's campuses in Annapolis and Santa Fe, where all you do is engage in Socratic dialogues. We read books and talked about ideas for four days. No tests, no lectures. Uh, I loved it. So mm. That gets us up to that point. That's beautiful. Well, I mean, and that is, when you're talking about the Socratic dialogue and just having these conversations and move forward, I mean, that is, you know, people ask, one of the DMs I get all the time, I get DMs all day long. Now I'll get some emails and things too, but it's a lot of, a lot of DMs and people will ask quite often. Um, and I always love this question is, who are some of the best Socratic teachers? How do we utilize the Socratic method at home? I would love to, you know, they're teachers. I would love to implement Socratic conversations in my classroom. I don't really know of a good resource. Where do I start? And in those conversations, I often point to who I believe are some of the best Socratic uh, educators on the planet. I mentioned you, I mentioned Jeff Sandifer, um, you know, two people uh, who I greatly admire. Uh, who do you look to uh, for that? How did you engage with that material and, and how did you continue to press forward with that? Did you dive into the work of Socrates? Did you go somewhere else? Like, what was your experience like as you found this methodology and started to get wrapped up in that? Where did you go? Who did you look to for mentorship in that regard? Really great. Actually, because, um, you know, of your audience, before I dive into that, I want to do a, a not obvious advertisement. So I, I for Socratic Dialogue, which is um, one of the things that uh, I find is everybody likes to be listened to and they like to, you know, they like when you care about their ideas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes it can become annoying. Socratic dialogue can, questioning can become annoying. Um, concrete example, the first date with my wife, I was asking her questions all evening and she said, this is giving me a headache. Um, but later she married me, so it turned out okay. But just uh, insofar as some of you might be interested in getting to know women more deeply, I would say being interested in other human beings is good. Uh, being interested in what uh, women care about and asking them questions in a polite, respectful way. But uh, I would say a lot of my relationships with women developed by means of conversation. So just a side advertisement. Absolutely. Um, 
So, but my junior year of high school, I'd had in Aspen, I had a teacher where it was basically Socratic dialogue and it's so much fun. For me, it's like going from, you know, these dull black and white films to bright color where all of a sudden we get to think about ideas until they're being told what to think. I'm very big on independence and I hate for anybody to tell me what to think. I want to think my own thoughts. I want to defend my own ideas. So I love that freedom and liberation. That's why I eventually went to St. John's. But one of the other things that I found was there at St. John's, we read really hard material and figure it out. So we read Aristotle, we read Einstein. And the model is that um, the, the tutor, they call them tutors rather than professors, is just the best teacher and the, the best student in the class. And actually, if you go to St. John's as a teacher, if you have a PhD in physics, you have to teach Greek. If you have a PhD in Greek, you have to teach music, which is crazy. It's insane. But going back to one of my favorites, there's a man named Phil LeCure, who was a basketball star. He was actually a Rhodes Scholar. So, you know, really bright and athletic guy. But he was a tutor when I was there. Uh, he was also um, engaged in futures trading. So he's not just an intellectual, but a futures trading. He also got into grinding lenses. So really interesting guy. But one of the things he said is the ideal St. John's foreign language exam is one where you don't know what language you're being tested on on Friday. So you got a test. Maybe it's going to be in Swahili or Portuguese or Mandarin. And you're given a grammar and um, lexicon and you just figure it out. You know, you figure things out. And I like that. That's actually how I connect the whole Socratic to entrepreneurship is real life is about figuring things out. School is about teachers telling you what to do and what to think. In real life, this is why I love travel. I love adventure. I love entrepreneurship. I love learning new things on my own. I'm an autodidact. I think one of the greatest joys in life is things don't make sense. You go figure it out. So I'm very grateful to Phil Cure for orienting me that Socratic dialogue is not harassing somebody else with questions. You know, it's not necessarily worship. You know, I certainly have respect for the ancient Greeks, but it's not kind of worship of the ancient Greeks. It's I am going to ask questions and figure things out. The simple version is I know what I know. I know what I don't know. And therefore, I know what I need to figure out. And that simple algorithm for how to figure things out. And imagine if any of you could figure out anything on your own with confidence, you're empowered to go into you know, new domains of knowledge and entrepreneurship and study. The world is open to you. So that, that's my, so converse with women to get relationships and learn to figure things out to conquer the world. It is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I love that with the women. Be interested versus trying to be interesting. I think a lot of young guys, especially as a young guy, you go in there and try to be the most interesting guy you can be to impress rather than being interested in her, right? And that's a vastly different proposition. Um, and I love the concept of bridging that gap of going to figure it out. It reminds me of uh, Sugata Mitra, you know, in the the hole in the wall and, and um, all of his great work there. All you saw was young people who were wildly interested in figuring it out. You know, that was it. So go ahead. I was going to say, I, and I've got tons of stories. So if any of you uh, like the idea of think, you know, figuring things out, a couple of stories of people that have done world-class work on their own. So um, I knew a young man, Cliff Spradlin. I met him when he was, you know, maybe 14, 15. He was basically a middle school dropout, high school dropout, sitting in his room on the computer all the time, but he was a self-taught coder. He became a self-taught coder. He actually did a hack in, I believe, Final Fantasy VII, where you could get data on how you trade, you know, goods, all kinds of goods on the system. And it wasn't a malicious or evil hack. It's just, hey, let's create a market. So he created a market. He wanted to work in the video game industry, self-taught high school dropout, got into the video game industry. 
went on to design 3D environments for the interior of expensive jet aircraft, um, eventually worked for Elon Musk, was flying around the world with Elon Musk in his private jet. Now he works for Google driverless cars, self-taught kid, you know, dropped out of school. Different case, um, you know, I know a young woman named Laura Deming, who is uh, not traditionally educated, basically unschooled. If you haven't had her dad on the show, it might be worth having him on the show. Matt is a friend of mine. And uh, she had never went to school. Two hours, she homeschooled, did two hours of math, two hours of reading, and two hours of piano every day, and then spent the rest of the day talking with her dad. And she got a internship with a world-class researcher at 12, got into MIT at 14, and dropped out of school at 16 to win a Teal Fellowship in her 20s as one of the world's leading anti-aging researchers. But she's never had a traditional school class at all, um, you know, just figured it out. Another case, Caleb Capocha is a mentee of mine. He dropped out of school at second grade and went on to become a professional actor, spent two seasons with uh, an AMC series called The Sun, working along Pierce Brosnan, went on and did a couple of years of community college, got into Harvard, has a great life. Uh, I have a business partner, Mikkel Thorup, special ed, hated school, dropped out around middle school. Now he makes seven figures a year as a, an expert in relocating expats. Um, I could go on and on. I know literally hundreds of people who have had alternative educations. Not that I'm encouraging anybody necessarily to drop out of school, but if you hate school and you have a passion, uh, you can do amazing things on your own. And you know we can talk about teen entrepreneurship. So you don't need school to have a fabulous life is the short version. That is so, and, and I know, obviously I, I know this and I'm very much in the same, um lane of of thought here as as you are um why do you think more people are not brave enough to tackle this sort of figure it out mentality is it more a product of the the common narrative and the status quo that they fear to leave or have we not done a good enough job of telling the stories of the people that haven't, you know, done the traditional route? Where, where do you think we are going wrong? No, that's a good question. So first of all, it's a huge top-down system. And sometimes I would say they, they maliciously lie. So I've, I've had public schools tell families that if you take your child out, um, they'll be behind and basically their life will be over. And I know for a fact that's false. So they, they lie. Um, there are also compulsory school laws where in certain conditions, parents have actually been put in jail because they take their kids out of school. You know, the home, this, this is still a case in Germany. In Germany, homeschooling is illegal and parents can be put in jail. Um, in the U.S., pretty much homeschooling is legal everywhere. And I just say homeschooling, you know, outside the system. There are lots of ways to be outside the system. And, and so I think there's this huge pressure. And then most people were taught, I'm tempted to say brainwashed, that you have to jump through the hoop. So in terms of these stories, I've been in alternative education for 35 years. That's why I know three, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kids with different lives. Mm -hmm. Just my own son, you know, I was creating schools all over the U.S. So I have two kids. They're grown. They're in their 30s now. 
who went to lots of different kinds of schools. But uh, one of the things that I was proudest of was when my own son was uh, going to be a high school senior, he dropped out because he knew that it was a waste of time going to school. And so unlike parents who put their kids under pressure to continue school, it's like, hey, you're smart enough to know it's nonsense. Yeah, quit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, awesome. I'm like, full on. A part of this is you have to have a passion. You know, If you're going to stay home and play video games all day and waste your life, not good. Um, but if there is something you're passionate about, you think you could manage your time and use your time to get ahead in life more quickly without the structure of schooling, I have seen so many kids do amazing things uh, by pursuing their own dreams at a young age. How I love that, man. How is that shifted? So you have built, I mean, you have built a number of schools, a number of programs. Um, you have been in this space and in this game, you know, longer than I have. Um, how have you seen uh, or have you seen, I guess I should say, instead of instead of leading and with a uh, presupposition, have you seen a shift in the culture, in the young heroes that have come into you um, in, in any way, positive or negative, where they're more apt to take the charge now or they're less apt to do so? Or how have you seen that shift? And obviously, culture has continued to change the tools, the resources. All of those things have continued to change. But how have you seen... Um, you know, the the young heroes themselves shift over these past, you know, a couple of decades as you've been in this work. No, thank you. And, and it's complex. The short version, it's complicated. Sure. But I'm going to start with the positive side and then I'll go to the negative side. On the positive side, I think one of the, going back to your question, why are we not yet done with the system? Yeah. I, uh, the rise of technology has been a liberating force in many ways. So I graduated from high school in 1979. One of my um, you know, high school, actually the kid I played chess with every day, he started college, dropped out of college as a software developer, was making a ton of money quickly. You know, Steve Jobs was a college dropout. Bill Gates was a college dropout. You know, Michael Dell was a college dropout. Yeah. You know, and those are just the high profile ones. Many thousands, because in tech, all that mattered was that you you perform. You know, right. the old world of jumping through hoops, oh, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a lawyer. Again, nothing wrong with doctors or lawyers, but there's a world where you do have to jump through the hoop to get the credential. One of the great things about tech was anybody who was bright and motivated could create a great career with no credentials at all. Mm -hmm. And that has been a tremendously liberating force. So going back to your question, Matt, I would say... I've seen now generations of young people. I, I created a Montessori middle school in Palo Alto 20 years ago, and there, you know, Palo Alto, Silicon Valley, most of the teenage boys, 12 or 13, were already coding. And so yeah. and it had new class. It's not like there were any classes taught in coding, but just it was in, in the air that, of course, when you're a teenage kid, you start coding, especially yeah. boys, very gendered. And as a consequence, if you're coding when you're 12 or 13, it's not a big deal to be starting your own company when you're 16, 17, 18. By the 20, you know, you might be making real money. So yeah. without a traditional education. So I'd say that tech path, um, extraordinary, and it's broader than just coding. You know, now it's UI, UX, digital media, digital marketing, video production. I know a lot of people in diverse spaces on this who ex had extraordinary careers. Um, one other case, uh, Henrik Carlson has a wonderful substack, and he did something on Mr. Beast. Mr. Beast at age 12 was a kid who hated school, and he started figuring out how do I optimize video and traction in video. Now, I think Mr. Beast made 50 million a year last year. His empire is worth on the order of a billion dollars. Um, he has 130 million subscribers, whereas the New York Times uh, only has 9 million subscribers. So Mr. Beast is an order of magnitude more influential than the New York Times. And he was a 12-year-old kid who hated school and started to focus on what he loved. 
Yeah, exactly. One other anecdote on kind of uh, what teenagers are possible, and then I'll go to the dark side. Yeah. Um, uh, in the 1990s, there was a platform called askme.com where you could give advice. And there was a 16-year-old kid, there, there was one on legal advice, and it was all lawyers, but there was somebody who became the top-ranked legal expert or one of the top-ranked legal experts on askme.com. Turned out it was a 16-year-old kid. And when the rest of the lawyers discovered a 16-year-old kid was beating them, they it was an upvote, downvote kind of thing. They voted him down and trashed his reputation. But then when the non-lawyers discovered the lawyers had kind of ganged up on him, they voted him back to the top and brought him up. Um, but it turned out what had happened was his brother had been murdered and everybody knew who the murderer was, but the police had not been able to prosecute the murderer. And that got this teenager into a rabbit hole of legal technicalities in an extraordinarily deep way. Because of course your brother's killed, they know, and they can't put this guy in jail. Um, so part of us is if you're really motivated, you can go to the top of anything. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, one other thing, just crypto. I'm a big fan of crypto. I have a friend named David Johnston who is homeschooled. Um, he told his parents that he didn't want to call, go to college. They said if you can make, uh, you know, I forget how many it was, hundred thousand dollars when you're 18, you can drop out of college, and he did. But he's one of the earliest VCs in crypto because as an 18 year old kid, he was getting into crypto. Uh, I don't know his net worth. It could easily be worth 100 million, 500 million, you know, something like that. So again, go to the frontier. Uh, tech has liberated young people. If that's your, not that everybody needs to do tech, but if there's some place in that ecosystem you can go, you go incredible. Kind of going to the other side on the dark side, of course, there's the whole free range kid thing where, yeah, yeah I was I was traveling around uh, all over with great freedom. And now kids typically have a lot less freedom. There's data on how, Kids are less likely to drive and have jobs. I think, you know, jobs are incredibly important. So that's been tragic. I would say the video game addiction. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer in unstructured education, but I have run into usually boys who are addicted to video games, tremendously damaging. And so again, it's not that I'm against video games. I'll give right. you one other positive anecdote. I knew another uh, kid in 10th grade who was a self-taught coder in Minecraft, and he was in San Francisco managing a software team that included uh, Ivy League computer science graduates under him. So 10-year-old self-taught Minecrafter yeah. coder is managing uh, CS graduates. So I'm, I'm actually big on those um, games where you are a sandbox, you're a creator, you're not passive. But you're, if you're passive, addicted to a video game, uh, get out of it. So you know, I could go on in terms yeah. of other addictions, but I would say that the, you know, active versus passive, taking initiative versus nice. being reactive, huge things to watch out for. Do whatever you can to take control of your life and be intentional about everything you do. So good. So good. How do you, you mentioned the, the, the young man and the crypto and, you know, his parents kind of giving him that um, sort of conversation. So how do you, I don't want to say, I don't want to, I don't want to say it the wrong way. I don't want to say, how do you, what I wanted to say was, how do you deal with parents? I don't think that's it. How do you support parents as their young heroes are, are going out and they're doing big things and conquering things, but how do you support the parents that are still tied to the fear? And I'll tell you, you know, this, I'll give you an example. Cause as you're, you're talking about this young man, you know, who's uh, I've got the Ivy League people who are now reporting to him and, and, and all of this, right? We had, um, you know, a young man at uh, one of my Acton campuses who 
graduated from our campus was offered uh, a career level position with a nationwide organization that up until that point had never hired anyone. And there were close to a thousand employees nationwide. They'd never hired anybody without a college degree. They changed that for him. First person they had ever hired. And he had people who had college degrees working for him. And I had a good conversation with his parents. I was so excited and they were excited too. But the mom said, oh, but you know, I there's a part of me that really hopes he doesn't uh, like this job. He backs out and he goes to college. And I said, okay, why do you, what is it about that? Like, what, what do you think? And she said, well, I just want him to, to, you know, go to college and get that degree so that he can get himself a good job. I said, you understand, he just walked into this good job with no debt that would normally require a degree. And he has degree people like, right. And she's like, yeah, but he still needs that thing to fall back on. Right. It's still that cult mentality of, of tied to that. What kind of, um, you know, supportive conversations have, have you had to kind of work with, with, with parents that you're serving? No, that's a great question. And I first want to tell a relevant anecdote. So um, one of my friends is John Mackey, the founder and CEO of Whole Foods Market. For sure. Yeah. And um, I, I met him through a cold call email. So if we have time to talk about the importance of cold call emails, we can do that. But um, his his he always jokes, he's a college dropout again, like as with many great entrepreneurs. Um, he always jokes that his resume says dishwasher, CEO of Whole Foods. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> right. he, was, yeah. he was somebody, you know, in his early 20s who had just had been a college student, you know, worked as a dishwasher and then got into natural and organic food, created Whole Foods. But his mother never accepted that he did not finish college. So even after Whole Foods had gone public, this is like 15 years into the company, the company is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Now it's worth billions. His mom came to him and said, when are you going to finish college, John? So, you know, part of this is some parents never get it. Love parents, but sometimes parents never get it. Um, going, going into what do you do and how to persuade them. So a couple of things. One is, um, you know, if anybody is really in a pinch, you know, I'm super busy, but I'm happy to talk to parents because, uh, you know, along with you, Matt, I probably know more people who've had great lives in the alternative system than anybody. And so some of this is proof of the only people they know who are success successful are college graduates and all the high school dropouts they know are losers. Of course, they're not going to let you do that. And I'm not sure. saying about, you know, um, whereas I can say, no, the stories I told you are one of hundreds. I yeah. have a video channel where I was doing interviews called When School's Not Working on YouTube. So if you want interviews with, you know, 20 people who basically left school and had all term or had alternative educations, great lives, including some of the ones I mentioned, When School's Not Working is my YouTube channel. So some of this is... Uh, either have Matt or I or somebody else explain. You guys do research and find people who've had great lives, but I, I wanna do a pitch for writing. So one of the things that I know a lot of kids and especially a lot of boys hate language arts class. And I think most language arts classes are terrible. Part of it is long story why that's, but they're terrible. But writing is super important. Being able to organize your ideas. So I have seen kids, uh, male and female who wanted to do a different path and either they do a PowerPoint presentation or they do an essay 
but it's well-argued, well-researched. This is in business. One of the things, reason writing is important is, you know, if Matt and I go into business together and I think he's wrong, I need to have a really well-organized, rational argument. And this happens in the business world all the time. I would say writing really well-argued emails is one of my superpowers. I'm connected to billionaires. How is it? I write well. So when you, if you hate language arts class, uh, whatever you can, learn how to write logically coherent uh, essays. And it's not about the essay. It's when you want to argue something with your parents or your spouse, or your business partner, you need to have why this is the course of action that I think is correct. And in terms of research, you need to be evidence-driven. Mm-hmm. I would say the best people, again, we can get into why surround yourself with the best people, but the best people respect evidence. And mm-hmm. so you need as a superpower to be master of evidence and organizing evidence and rational arguments so that your convictions prevail. Or you also need to respect evidence. If the other party, your parents or boss or whatever have better evidence, you've got to say, whoops, I was wrong. Your evidence is better. So I would say become a master at arguing for your point. And if you don't yet know how to do that, put that on your list of superpowers to develop. So good. I mean, Jordan Peterson always talks about the the reality of look, the, the, the need to write. Um, the superpower of writing is because it supercharges your ability to think. Right. And, and to communicate. And it's that. And it's not just the ability to communicate in writing, which is the natural way we go, but it's your ability to communicate in general. Your ability to do exactly what you said is to organize, you know, your thoughts. I've gotten now just the opportunity to stand on stage to and spoken to, you know, half a million people around the world. And that always starts with writing everything out as if I was going to be reading a script. I don't, and that's not what I do, but it allows me to organize the train of thought so that it can be something that is that is not a boring lecture, that it's something that's engaging. It's something that's well thought out. It's something that's well argued. It's something that takes you on that hero's journey, the emotional roller coaster. It starts with the writing. Right? Always does. It's beautiful. Big time. And actually, to do a riff on going back to the cold call emails, um, a man named Zach Slayback, I'm sure you know Zach, mm-hmm. Matt. Um, yeah. He has a wonderful thing on how to write a cold call email. And just cold call means you don't know the person. So it's one thing to get an introduction to somebody. It's another thing to find somebody on LinkedIn you want to connect with and write them an email when they have no idea who you are. Mm -hmm. But I would say being able to reach out to somebody else, and especially, you know, networks are incredibly important. Going back to the college thing, I would say one of the most useful things about college is it's a place to develop networks. So if you're outside of colleges and you don't have a good way to develop networks, that's one of the big needs. I knew somebody who graduated from Harvard Business School, and he said, I didn't learn a thing there, but it was the best fraternity in the world. That's exactly right, because you meet, you know, powerful and influential, or people are going to be powerful and influential. Mm -hmm. So in terms of cold call emails, I have reached out to so many people I didn't know, going back to writing a really crisp email saying exactly what I was going, why I was getting in touch with them and why. You know, busy people don't have time for spam. So if you're just saying, hey, I like you, no, you're you're an idiot. <laughs> Not to put two, but you know, you gotta be about these things. What you have to do in every relationship is show how you are going to add value. Again, this, you know, in some ways, if you're gonna, you know, have a relationship with a woman, you need to show how you're gonna add value. If you're gonna have a relationship with a boss or a sales contact or an influencer or whatever. How do I add value to your life? So when I'm constructing a cold call email, first thing I do is I research the other person deeply. And I think, what is there that I can offer that might be of value to them? And going back to rational argument, by the time I write it, 
I am really clear about what I am offering to them that's valuable. And you need to write it crisply and concisely. I would say one thing that's terrible about language arts classes is they want you to write these long rambling essays. In business writing, right, um, you've got seconds. When I'm writing an email to a wealthy, influential, powerful person, I realize if I don't put them in the first sentence or two, I'm lost. You know, yep. if I ramble on for six paragraphs, done. So you can learn to have a really well-defined value proposition. I'm reaching out to you because you need to state it in the first sentence or two crisply and cleanly, and then boom, have a few other reasons for them to connect with you. And that's how you can expand your network uh, as much as you want or need. Gentlemen, that's gold. I promise you that is just absolute gold right there. That is one of the worst things that language arts classes ever did was the superfluous, just, hey, you got to get to, you know, 1500 words. Well, if I can say it really, really powerfully in 300, I need to say it in 300. If it's a 300 word assignment, but I can say it ridiculously powerfully in 50 words, I need to get down to 50 words. Right. And that's uh, that goes for all forms of communication. It's one of the most powerful things about TED Talks is you come in and, and everybody thinks, OK, well, I have a lot to say. Oh, my gosh, I just did. A, it was a 45 minute talk. And it's like, great, you have eight minutes. So go ahead and, and whittle that down to what you actually need to say. Big time. I just want to do a quick pitch along these lines for sales and marketing. You know, a lot of people know about careers in coding or engineering or doctors or lawyers or architects or whatever. I would say one of the other superpowers, I think in some ways, if you're going to do an alternative path, you need to think of superpowers. Mm -hmm. And by this, I mean certain skills where if you develop them to a sufficiently high level, you can do anything. Mm -hmm. But if you neglect them, even if you get a PhD from Harvard or whatever, whatever you don't have opportunities. So you need to focus on the superpowers. Um, sales and marketing. One of the great things I did uh, in college is I went door-to-door -door selling storm windows. So door-to-door -door sales is one of the most discouraging thing. You knock on 100 doors and 99 shut them in your face. For sure. Sales is commission-based, which means you only get paid if you actually make a sale. So I remember one hot summer day going door-to-door, -door, 100 doors slammed on my face. And I finally get to the last one Friday afternoon. I'm dog tired. And this woman wants to buy my solar panels. And I made, you know, like a $600 commission in that one, you know, hour meeting. And it made my week. Uh, so sales and marketing. But we can go to Q&A. Absolutely. Says, oh, so good. You have now taken the step to becoming a great leader of tomorrow. Join the Apogee program by visiting www.apogeestrong.com. For inquiries, contact us 916-728-0606 or email matt at apogeestrong.com. Thank you for listening to Essential 11, Shaping Leaders Among Leaders. Stay tuned for more episodes.